The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The passage for the sermon today is 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 14, if you'd like to go ahead and turn there. 2 Samuel 21. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David... For three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they were gathered, the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Maybe some of you who are maybe a little bit older remember the days of your school years, your elementary school upbringings, and maybe you had that one particular teacher. You know the teacher I'm talking about? 
that was a um, stickler for the rules, let's say. We used to call them, uh, I think the old word for that is school marm. Right? You remember that? The, the, the lady? No, some of the young people are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. We didn't even get licks when we were in school. That's fine. <laughs> some of you do know what I'm talking about. You remember that, that teacher that came by and you wrote with the wrong hand and they would slap your hand with the, the ruler and you'd have to write with your right hand? You know? I've only heard stories about that. When I was a kid, I grew up the first five years of elementary school. I was in a Catholic school. And the principal was a lady, a nun, named Sister Patricia. Now, she would, turned out to be a very nice lady looking back on it as an adult, but when I was a kid, she scared the daylights out of me. And I didn't know what a nun was, I just knew that they devoured children, and that was it. That was all I was told. And so the few times that I got sent to the principal's office for things that other people did... Um, the, uh, I just looked at her over the desk, and I was just afraid. I was, I was terrified that, uh, well, that she was going to eat me. Um, and so I knew that that was going to happen. And that, that was, you know, it was like growing up in school like that, you, you continually thought where the rules were enforced. It was a, uh, in, in the school that I grew up in, it was a, a you know, th- there was no tolerance for disobedience. It was one infringement, and you were in the principal's office. And uh, there, were, there were such things as, as licks, which some of you young people are like, yeah, I don't even know what that is. They used to swat you at school. They used to take a paddle and just spank your bottom right there in school. And then you'd get it when you got home. I remember that. But it was that kind of school marm mentality where there was, there was no tolerance for a violation of the rules. It was a zero-tolerance policy that they had. Some of you remember what that was like growing up. In our passage this morning, David is running into a situation where he is being confronted by the curse of the covenant. What does it mean to actually be the people of God? What happens as a result of breaking God's law. It turns out, in spite of what you may be led to believe, when you break God's law, there is a zero-tolerance policy. And God is, uh, David, rather, is now, being, is now being confronted by people infringing upon God's covenant, and he's now having to enforce justice based on God's standards of obedience. And as you read this chapter, or this half of the chapter, you you come away with the understanding that it's not pretty. In fact, it's one of those passages that you kind of go, I'd rather not have to teach this to my kids around the dinner table. This is not the passage that we're going to come to and lead revival right there in our home. It's one of those passages that's rather challenging and kind of difficult. But here we are at the end of 2 Samuel. We're in ch- starting in chapter 21. And chapters 21 to 24 bring the books of First and 2 Samuel to a close. And in, in reality, this is kind of like the author sort of buttoning everything up at the very end. The stories that we're reading from 21 all the way through the end are not chronological. 
So these are not what happened next in the story after chapter 20. These are sprinkled somewhere throughout. And in some cases, that's very obvious that these are not chronological. And in some cases, they're not. And I will try to clue us in. But the point is that they're taking some, they're taking point, some point, they're taking place at some point in David's reign. And they're sprinkled throughout. And, and what our job is to really understand why they're here and how they're beginning to tie in to this story that we've been reading up to this point. The opening of the conclusion here of First and Second Samuel remembers a time when David's Israel is under a curse of famine, and they've been going through this famine for going on three years now, over three years, in fact. And up to this point, there has been no clue as to why this famine has been brought to them, but it's becoming obvious that what's happening to them in this famine is no mere weather pattern. This is not simply a, a, you know, a cycle of weather, not some normal event, in other words, but that this is brought about by the hand of God Himself. So David is now beginning to turn to God and going, okay, is there something else going on? Something that I didn't know about? What, what is the reason for this famine? And so David goes before the Lord, and it turns out that the reason that this famine is being brought to him, the problem, stemmed from an event that we weren't even told about that happened during the reign of Saul. This is years ago, but it happened during the reign of Saul. And it seems that Saul had gone into an area where the Gibeonites lived, and he killed a number of them. Now, as I said, we weren't told about what happened when it happened, but the odds are it was probably sometime around the time when Saul sought to kill the priests of Nob. That was at least in the same area. And so it stands to reason that that's probably about the time that it was, but we weren't told about this ever occurring. But needless to say, Saul had gone into the area of the Gibeonites and he killed a number of them. Now, First, we've got to remember, we weren't told exactly when this happened, other than it happened during the Saul's reign. And we aren't even told how many Gibeonites he killed. He went into the area, he killed a number of them, but we're not told how many. We also aren't told who besides Saul was involved in the killing of the Gibeonites. Just that Saul was involved or that he decided to do it. We're only told that it was done and that it is the reason that the land is being cursed and that the people of Israel have come under this famine. It is a direct punishment for what Saul did many, many, many years ago. Now, you got to ask at some point, why, why are the Gibeonites such a bit? There was a whole lot of killing going on in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and even David took part in some of this, and and, and all of that was going on back then. Why does God look back years in the past, find this episode with Gibeah, and decide to do something about it there? Why? Why were the Gibeonites such a big deal that he paid special attention to them? Now, if you don't remember who the Gibeonites are, it's worth going back and remembering who they are, because otherwise this passage will make absolutely no sense to you. Gibeah is a little town, and it's in the territory of Benjamin. 
So at the very south of Israel, you've got Judah, and just on top of that, you have Benjamin. Tiny little territory, and often considered part of Judah, but it, a little, little territory of Benjamin. And inside that little territory of Benjamin is a town about five miles north of Jerusalem called Gibeah. Now, the Gibeonites are not Jewish. The Gibeonites are not a part of the Jewish people at all. The Gibeonites were actually people that 400 years ago came to Joshua and tricked him back in Joshua chapter 9. Now, I want to read part of this story of the Gibeonites tricking Joshua so you understand what's going on here. Joshua chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. It should appear on the screen behind me. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, and with worn-out patches, uh, patch sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So, pause for a second. The Israelites are marching in to the land of Canaan, and they're there to judge the people that are there, because God has sent them into the land to judge the people that are there. So they march into Jericho, and then to Ai, and they tear down the cities brick by brick, basically, and they take care, they judge the inhabitants, they kill the inhabitants there. And so the Gibeonites, who are just a little bit down the road, get wind of what Israel has done as they've marched into the land, and they start thinking to themselves, if Jericho and I couldn't withstand the armies of the Lord, we're not going to be able to either. So, here's what we need to do. Go get all your shabby clothes, go get your work shoes, and let's put them on. Take your bread, let's leave it out in the dry air and let it get stale. Let's pretend like we're not from around here. And let's come to the people of Israel and let's disguise ourselves like we are weary travelers from abroad. And let's see if we can trick Israel into making a covenant with us. In which case, we'll be protected, we'll be immune from prosecution, and they won't be able to destroy us. So that's exactly what they do. Verse 7, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, that's the inhabitants of Gibeah, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country, your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. In verse 14, it says, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's key. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Verse 18, 
But the people of Israel did not attack them, the Gibeonites, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to, the con- said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest, the, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So not only did Gibeah betray them, but once Israel found out that they were beguiled, they still had to keep up their end of the covenant. And why did they do that? Well, it all stems from the fact that they didn't seek counsel from the Lord first. They just went ahead and made a covenant and trusted the word that the Gibeonites had said to them. Perhaps if they had sought the Lord, the Lord would have told them, hey, these guys are tricking you. You need to go ahead and, you know, judge them. And maybe that would have all been, you know, done away with. But this would never have happened. But that's not what they did. They made a covenant with them, and they had to keep up their end of the covenant. Okay? So here are the descendants of the Gibeonites some 400 years later, nearly 400 years later, and they're still the recipients of this covenant from Israel. The important parts to notice about this covenant is first, that the covenant with the Gibeonites is that Israel will not attack them, and that if they break the covenant by attacking the Gibeonites, they will incur, what is it? The wrath of God. Second, the oath that they swore is by the name of the Lord their God. So they haven't just made a promise to Gibeah. They've gone a step further and they've pinky promised. Or a step further than even that. And they've said, the name of the Lord is invoked. So if we break our promise, then His name is now marred because of our betrayal of this promise. So now, not only the name of Joshua is at stake, the name of Israel is at stake, but now also the name of God is at stake. Well, we find out that this is the oath that Saul broke when he put the Gibeonites to death. And many years later, God is now, through David, seeking to rectify this problem that Saul created. So he sends this famine, and the famine's purpose is to get David's attention to realize there is a sin in Israel's past that remains unaccounted for, and it must be rectified. And so David's figured out that this is why the famine is there, and so he begins. So we look at verse 3 to find out what he's got to do. Look at verse 3. David said in our passage, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us 
and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So, because it was the name of the Lord that was marred by Saul's actions, David is wanting to restore the Lord's name in the eyes of the Gibeonites. And he says literally that they may bless the heritage of the Lord, meaning that they may bless Israel. In other words, Israel has become a stench in the nostrils of the Gibeonites, whom they made a covenant with. And because the covenant was in the name of the Lord, now God's name itself has become a stench in the nostrils of the Gibeonites. And David has to rectify it. So the Gibeonites are the ones that are left to determine, how does Israel repay this? So David asks them. Well, they refuse money. We can't, we're not going to take, it's not about money, David. It's not about silver or gold. And they also refuse to go in personally and take the life of any Israelite. So they, they say it's not for us to go in and kill a person in Israel. So then David presses them. Well, what, what is it that you want me to give you? And they say, well, if you were to give us seven of Saul's sons. Now, most of Saul's sons are dead. And all of Saul's sons are dead. So it's really his grandsons and so on. Well, if you were to give us seven of Saul's sons, then that would settle the matter in our minds. And so, perhaps with, to their astonishment, and maybe even to the readers like us, in a 21st century context, David says, okay, sounds good. And we look at that and we may go, why? If we just take a time out for a second, why do Saul's sons, or grandsons as it were, have to die when they had nothing to do with what Saul did many, many, many years ago. And it's situations like this in the Bible, I think, that every time I get to them as a pastor, or perhaps you're a dad or mom around the dinner table, and you're reading this passage to the kids, and you're like, you know what? I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> and... Uh, so that happened. Let's go on to the next you know, verse, right? You kind of want to sort of move past it and, or, or think about something else. Or, or it trips people up in our wrestling with the truth of the Bible. And many come to a passage like this and they say, why is so-called justice being carried out on people that at least on the surface of things seem to have nothing to do with the crime that was enacted. I, how would you even really call that justice? And, and what do we do with a passage like that? Well, before we answer that question, and I want to answer that question, let's just back up for just a second. And let's first think about what task David is really given. And, and I want you to see in this passage that there are actually several covenants that are at stake right now that David is having to uphold simultaneously. And, and it makes the situation ahead of him 
even more difficult. He is the sworn protector in this passage of no less than three covenants at this point in time. And all of them are actually coming into conflict with each other at one point or another. First, there's obviously the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites. David has to uphold the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites, and he's got to make, he literally says he's got to make atonement here, or else the entire nation of Israel suffers the wrath of God in this famine, and who knows what it will increase to next. So he's got to uphold the first covenant, which is the covenant with Joshua and the Gibeonites. The second covenant that he has made is a covenant with Saul's son, Jonathan, to protect Jonathan's children. Remember, some time ago, he called this guy named Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son, into his palace and decided to feed him. You're going to eat at my table. You're never going to be without food. I'm going to constantly, I'm going to constantly look after you. And why does he do that? Because back in 1 Samuel, he made a promise to Jonathan that said, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Meaning, our families are always going to be kin. I'm going to look after your kids. If you die, you look after my kids. If I die. And now, maybe you see the problem here is that J David has promised to look after Jonathan's children, who are the sons of Saul who are now being requested to be given over to the Gibeonites to be killed. Two, conflict, two covenants coming in conflict with one another. But last, he, and probably most importantly, he is the sworn protector of God's covenant with Israel. And it's expressly written in the book of the law, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, it says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. All right. So now you got the dilemma. What are you going to do, David? Because it kind of sounds like Saul is already dead, and he is. And it also sounds like the Gibeonites, because they can't go kill Saul, want Saul's kids, who seem to have nothing to do with this problem. And so it seems like, on the surface, that you're putting to death the son for something the father is guilty of. So which covenant are you going to break? Do you see the dilemma that David is presented with? Before we think about how he goes about solving this, it's important to understand how God responds to the act of atonement. What does God do when David uses this solution to make atonement for the sin of Saul? We see Rizpah, who is the daughter of Saul. She builds what is effectively a lean-to off of a rock, where the bodies of these men are hung, and she camps next to them. And when the birds would come to devour their flesh, she would scare off the birds. And she did this to protect their bodies so that they wouldn't be desecrated. And once David 
gets wind of what she does, he acts promptly. He takes the bones of the men that were hung, he goes and gets the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. He takes all of their bones and he gives them a proper Jewish burial so that the bones wouldn't be desecrated. And once all the bones are buried, it says in verse 14, and they buried their, the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So, Let's just pause for a second and say, before we sit here some 3,000 years removed from this situation and look on and go, I can't believe David would hand over the sons of Saul, let's also note God approved of what David did. So before we look at the text disapprovingly, we have to acknowledge God looks at it approvingly. So perhaps we would want to be on his side in all of this, I would assume. He approved of it. Now, what does David do? Well, verse 6, he told us David intends to honor the Gibeonites' request, and he's going to grant them the sons of Saul. So he's honoring the covenant with Joshua. But verse 7, look at verse 7, it tells us this, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So, the second covenant David is seeking to uphold too, the covenant that he made with Jonathan. He wants to protect that, and so he's bringing Mephibosheth in to eat at his table. So likely this happened sometime in David's reign around that time when he brought Mephibosheth in. But what about that final and, and arguably most important one, known as the law? How does David get around this one? Well, I want you to pay attention to verse 1 and what it says. Look at verse 1. It's the second, part, the second half of verse 1 where it starts with, And the Lord said, And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So first... Let's understand that the guilt is not merely on Saul. If it were merely on Saul, David would be responsible to not punish the grandsons of Saul for a sin that Saul had committed. But the Lord is very clear that the blood guilt is not merely on Saul, but on his entire house for the sin that Saul committed. Second, that means that it's not a foregone conclusion that these grandkids had nothing to do with this situation. There's a reasonable likelihood that the grandkids did have something to do with it, that they may have served in the military or something like that, and they carried out the orders. But third, and most importantly, Saul played an important role in Israel. He was Israel's king. And, and you have to remember that. His sin was unfortunately not only his sin. As king over God's kingdom, his sin was not only his sin. His sin compromised the entire kingdom because he was the representative of God. Remember David's sin with Bathsheba? 
Remember when he committed that sin? What was the result? The sword will never depart from your house, David. It will always be there. So other people were also going to suffer because of David's sin with Bathsheba. All the people suffer when the king sins. He's a representative for everyone. And as Israel's leader, when he was guilty, often all of Israel was guilty and all of Israel suffered the consequences. After all, every single one of Israel is suffering the results of the famine, which was a product of Saul's sin to begin with. And in that famine that went on for three years, how many people do you think died? You think no one died? Many people were dying because of Saul's sin. Saul was the king, and as representative, he was responsible. But to put the Gibeonites to death would have also taken Israel's military. So it's not as though Saul acted alone. He went in and he sent Israel's armies in after Gibeon. After Gibeah, right? He sent them to kill him. But do you notice that no one who served in Saul's military is put to death here? No. They're not held accountable. It's Saul and his house that is accountable. So God is doing something here intentional. He is holding Saul's entire dynasty responsible for breaking the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites. And he is ensuring that Saul's entire house will never see the light of day, much less the throne of Israel. So whatever happens to David, regardless of what happens to David, Saul's Heirs will never have a claim to the throne because they're being put to death. They're never going to be permitted to lead the nation of Israel into the same kind of covenant breaking that Saul had led Israel into. That is not what God wants for His people. He's ending Saul's possible future leadership. But now let's take another step back for just a second. I think the reason that a passage like this makes us a little uneasy is because as sinful people, I think we hate the notion that God has a standard of righteousness that could possibly be so high that He would demand blood as a payment for law-breaking. I think that's, at the core of it, what makes us so uneasy about a passage like this. Is we look at this and go, Saul broke a 400-year-old promise. And you're holding him and his whole family accountable for something as little as that? And, And it terrifies us Maybe because we might be thinking, first of all, who is God that He should demand such steep a price for something like that? But perhaps what we really should be thinking, what would you do if He demanded that price of you? What if, what if, 
God demanded that high of a price for you and for your sin. I think it's inarguable that the price that Saul's family is paying for that kind of law-breaking is pretty steep. What if he demanded that of you? What if, let's just, a thought experiment. Follow me on this. What if you were to stand before God on Judgment Day and you were to give an account and, and, and the books of your life were open and literally everything about your life was recorded in these books from top to bottom. Your life was laid bare right there before Him. And what if the standard of judgment was like the schoolmarm? The one who made you write with the correct hand. I stand here as a lefty, by the way. Guilty already. The, the one who made you follow the letter of the law. What, what would happen if the judgment was like that? The standard was so strict that it included not just big sins, but broken promises as it was for Saul and his household. What, what, if, what if it included white lies? What if it included lustful thoughts? What if it included bitterness and envy and hatred in your heart? What if your heart was measured against a standard of holiness that's so high that it included every single bad motive you've ever had? And it was all from beginning to end, from, from the cradle to the grave, it was just read out one right after another. And you had this bad motive, and you had this in your heart, and you were thinking this at this time, and then you did this, and then you said this, and you did that. But if every single thing was accounted for, consider for just a second that this event in, in David's life that's happening is God coming in to Israel, now that he has his king, David, in place. And he's illustrating to Israel exactly what is required of the law. Do you understand the law is a school marm? The law has zero tolerance for rule breakers. The punishment for breaking God's law is and always will be death. Saul has led Israel on this wild escapade of who cares what God says? Who cares what His law means? It doesn't matter what He's telling us. We can do whatever we want. And Saul proved that time and again, and he led all of Israel to do the same thing. It doesn't matter what the covenants that we made in the past, that's 400 years ago, that's in the past. God doesn't care about those things. And even if he does, what's he going to do about it? It doesn't matter. Now God has situated David on the throne, and he is teaching David, teaching all of Israel, and further, he is teaching everyone who would ever read about this story exactly what his standard of justice is like. 
God, or Saul rather, bears the name of God. And what's more, he broke an oath sworn in God's name and caused God's name to be marred in the mouths of the Gibeonites and God will not tolerate His name being mocked. Now, He doesn't always act speedily. But this time, He does. He comes into David and He says, you've got to fix it. And he demonstrates what his righteous judgment is actually like. And when you look at it like that, it's horrific. And when you're around the dinner table and you're reading that to your kids and you're tempted to close it up and say, let's move on to somewhere in Psalms or something in, you know, some happy verse somewhere else. The Bible's saying, no, you and your children need to see the horrific judgment that lawbreaking brings. You need to understand that. But this, you just can't stop there. See, this is why the good news of Jesus Christ is so good. This is precisely why it's so good. Jesus took on flesh, born the king from David's line, to rid the kingdom of all lawbreakers. Well, that's not the good part. Because if we just stopped there, we'd all be dead. The good news is that he was also, just like he was the king to come and rid the kingdom of all the lawbreakers, he was also the, the son of the king who's the one that died to atone for the lawbreakers. That's the reversal in the gospel. He didn't have to go find somebody else to make atonement for all the lawbreakers, to relieve people of suffering. No, he was the one that lived perfectly, and then he goes further than David ever could. He's perfect, and in his death, our sins are atoned for. He's the one that goes and suffers. See, in the Gospel, God does not compromise His standard of justice. He does not sweep it under the rug. He does not look the other way. He deals with it just like this. That all rule-breaking must be punished. And the punishment was so severe that it took the one and only Son of God living perfectly to die in my place to suffer the death that I deserved as a rule breaker. That's what it took. He punished his own son because of my sin. The question then to consider in this text is what do you do with your sin? Where do you take it? If you, I, I think all of us can recognize that there is such a thing as evil. That there are people that deserve justice. The problem is we just never think that we are the ones that deserve it. 
Hamas, they deserve the justice. Hitler deserves the justice. Mussolini, Stalin, the bad ones in history, Pol Pot, they deserve the justice. But that was just a white lie. And sure, if you were setting the standard of justice, you might be able to consider yourself good, just as an exercise. Go up to somebody at work and ask them if there was a judgment day and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you in? What would you say? Nine times out of ten, maybe ten times out of ten, you're going to get, well, I've been a good person. I, you know, I try to do what's right. I, you're going to get the whole list. You're not, you ask them, well, have you, ever, have you ever lied? Yeah, I've lied. Well, let me take you to 2 Samuel 21. <laughs> let me show you what covenant breakers. <laughs> you ever broken a promise? Here's, here's what they suffered. See, no one ever thinks that they're the ones that deserve the justice. We're, we're always, the, our, our standard of righteousness, that should be the one that is the determining factor as to whether you get into heaven or not. And conveniently, I'll always make it by my standard of justice. And no one else seems to ever be able to make it. But God doesn't judge that way. God's standard of justice is perfect and as Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you think to yourself, well, I, well I'm never going to be that. Yes. Yes. That's why the gospel is good news. Jesus was the perfect one. He's the one that lived perfectly. It's trust in Him. His sacrifice is all that you need. So we should understand God takes Sin, seriously, your sin is an offense to him, and he doesn't overlook it. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The Bible warns us of that time and again. We should also remember that the Lord is patient. How long did he let the sins of Saul and his family go unpunished? For years before he ever revisited and just like then, you may continue in your unbelief up until a point. God has affixed a time on which He will judge the world. And it will be this resurrected Son that does it. And at that point, it's too late. Why not confess sin to Him now? Why not profess faith in Him now? Why not claim His blood as your atoning sacrifice now? Why not put your trust in Christ today? Jesus is the only sacrifice that can atone for your sin or for my sin. Period. There is no other substitute. So don't wait. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the, all those within hearing that you would open all our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, to rejoice in what Christ has afforded to us. Forgiveness, acceptance, eternal life rather than death. And I pray that we would gladly receive the forgiveness that only He can give. Give us eyes to see, 
hearts to hear. For our children, for adults, open our eyes to see the truth of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.